This is an ABC podcast. So what are your plans this week, Norman? My plans this week are to stay clear of coronavirus. Well, I mean, every day is a day where you're trying to stay clear of coronavirus, right? But I've got particular motivation this week because I'm actually flying out. I need to be negative before I go to America. Oh my gosh, that's really exciting. You'll be reacquainting yourself with swollen ankles and that kind of feeling like you've got a fuzzy mouth and all those lovely things that go along with long-haul travel. Assuming the swab is negative. We'll see. <laughs> He's hoping. So Coronacast will partly come to you next week from the United States. Well, that, that sounds very international and exotic of us. Anyway, let's do today's episode. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Wednesday the 6th of April 2022. And one of the refrains early in the pandemic was that the coronavirus was kind of just like the flu, which we've talked at length about why that's not the case. But I would like to reiterate that just the flu sucks. As someone who's had the flu before, uh, it's no joke. And we are approaching our first winter in Australia where the, both the flu and coronavirus are present and potentially uh, dangerous threats. So what should we be doing to prepare for this winter? Well, potentially, we for the last two years, you've had uh, the potential for flu and coronavirus to mix, but we've had lockdowns and we've had international borders closed, so we've had almost no influenza virus in the country. And also, despite exhortations for people to get immunised over the last couple of years against influenza, not as many people as usual had been immunised. So we actually enter... This 2022 flu season with very low levels of immunity. So we are very vulnerable to influenza, which will come in because of international travel being open. So it's really important. And what you really don't want is to be co-infected with coronavirus and influenza at the same time. So you can so that can happen. Is it twice as bad as just having one? Well, it's hard to actually measure how much worse it is. But the British have actually studied this and they looked at uh, over 200,000 adults with uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection who were admitted to hospital between 2020 and 2021, you know, almost two years of data. And they actually, and they were looking for several respiratory viruses at the same time. So about 7,000 patients who had SARS-CoV-2, who had COVID-19, they um, detected co-infection with another respiratory virus in about nine, eight or nine percent of them. Some of them had flu, some of them had RSV, which is mostly a, a respiratory syncytial virus, which is mostly affecting children, and some had adenoviruses, which are really versions of the common cold, common cold virus, although coronaviruses are common cold viruses as well. Bottom line, influenza viruses were associated with significantly increased risk of ending up in ICU and getting ventilated. And both influenza and adenoviruses were significantly associated with an increased chance of dying. So this is not something you want. So this is in people who have COVID as well. That's right. So the odds are, you asked me really how much increase there is in this study. It's, a, it's about a 70% increase in the risk of being ventilated if you've got the flu. And it's about a 50% increase of dying if you've got the flu. Other viruses don't reach statistical significance, which is why we, um, why I was a bit um, careful in what I said earlier. So the most significant effect is actually from influenza. But I mean, the good news is that we do have vaccines against the flu. So usually I think if I'm remembering rightly, Norman, in the, an average flu season, about 60 to 50 to 60% of the adult population get a flu shot. 
that makes a difference in how sick you can get if you catch the virus, just like with coronaviruses. Yeah, it does help in reducing hospitalisation. It's not as good as the COVID vaccine, but it's, it's okay. And it was, it's actually, I think, in high-risk groups, it's up to 70%. So just a reminder about influenza immunisation. We're all vulnerable. We should all get it. But the people who are particularly vulnerable are children under five, pregnant women. Now, if you're pregnant any time of the year, not just in the flu season, you need to be immunised against influenza. You do not want to get influenza, just like you don't want to get COVID-19 when you're pregnant. Bad outcomes. People aged over 65, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, people with uh, significant comorbidities. Those, I may have missed some out, but basically those are the groups who are particularly vulnerable. And for the over 65s, there is a stronger vaccine available for the over 65s so that you can get extra immunity. We have had a lot of people asking questions about timing, timing their COVID booster and also timing their flu shot. What's the advice this year? Well, the advice this year is get your flu shot. And if you're due for your third or indeed fourth dose, you can get it at the same visit to your doctor. So the the upshot is if you're due for your COVID third or fourth dose, just get it. And if you're at high risk, definitely get your flu shot this year. And if you're not, then still consider getting it. When should we be looking to book in that flu shot, Norman? Well, generally the recommendation is mid-April, from mid-April, but a lot of pharmacists and GPs already have their stock in place. So it's probably from now on. Yeah, I think it was 2020, there was no flu jabs to be found anywhere in the country. Um, It's good to know that we've got good stock this year. Yeah, I think in place. And if you're 65 and over, you should be getting the one that's designed for people 65 and over. So, Norman, you said we've got flu vaccine supply in the country now, and the flu vaccine is updated each year with the circulating strains. Is the stuff that's here now this year's vaccine? Yeah, it's locked in. It's, a, it's designed as best they can, and it's not. I can't imagine it's been a particularly easy task this year because there's not been that much flu circulating to know. But no, that's it. There, you Don't hang on. There won't be a new version of the flu vaccine in this season get it done now. So back to COVID, Norman, and we've talked a lot on this podcast about lots of different studies about vaccine effectiveness, and they're often from Norway and Israel and places like that. But have you ever noticed that we've never talked about one from Australia? And one of the reasons for that is deficiency in our data. And a recent letter to the Medical Journal of Australia um, has bemoaned that and talked about what the solutions are. And one of the authors is David Henry, who's Professor of Evidence-Based Practice at Bond University in Queensland. I might need to do simultaneous translation because he's got an odd accent. Welcome to Corona Cancer. <laughs> Good morning, Norman. In a nutshell, what does the letter that you've written say? It says that 35 countries have performed 237 studies of vaccine effectiveness using routinely collected health data, and not one of these studies was performed in Australia. And the big question is why? It's a key question, and it's because we have failed as a nation to join up our different health databases to enable this type of research to be done. And if you take those health data, I mean, what are you talking about here? Because this just goes over your head, health databases. I mean, what are you talking about tangibly? If you go to a family physician, there's a record of that. If you go to the pharmacy for prescription record of that. If you go to an emergency department, there's a record of that. If you're unfortunate enough to go to ICU, there's a record of that. If you die, there's a record of that. These can be joined up at individual level and used to analyse the effects of medical interventions, including vaccinations and drugs. 
And what you're saying is that those 237 studies have used exactly that kind of linked data. The majority of them have used high-level sort of nationwide or community-wide databases of that type linked up. My understanding, though, is that we do link up data in Australia. What's, what's the gap here? The gap has been the linkage of the, both the Commonwealth and the state data. If you receive a prescription for medication or you are vaccinated and go in the vaccine register, it's held at Commonwealth level. If you're unfortunate enough to die, it's Commonwealth level. But if you're admitted to hospital, it's at state level. So it's the interjurisdictional linkage that has been the problem. And what's the solution? Well, the Commonwealth has made moves. It has introduced the Data Availability and Transparency Bill, which has received very little attention. And that authorises Commonwealth bodies to share their data with accredited, approved um, data service providers under certain pre-specified conditions. But the state says yet are not um, part of that in order to link the um, the types of data that are needed to perform these studies. So it's the usual mess of federal-state relations? It's certainly part of it. I, but, but to be fair, it's a step forward. But I've not detected a great enthusiasm at state level to be part of this movement to link data. The Commonwealth have made a move. So two things, David. One is that we've um, the pandemic's got a fair way to run, so there's more data to be collected and more anal analysis to be done. But if we had this linked system, and it has to be said that we do have better linkage now than we used to, particularly on hospital data, um, so it's not entirely hopeless, but if we had the sort of linkage that you're suggesting, what else could benefit from it? Well, we would be able to look at a wide array of drugs. For instance, just sticking with COVID, molnupiravir has just been TGA approved and PBS listed. And we would be able to look at how well it's been used in mild to moderate COVID cases in the community. Is it preventing hospitalisation as we think it should under Australian conditions? And then we can go beyond COVID to a wide array of medications to find out how well they're working in real life. People say, well, you know, I'm worried about privacy. If you're going to share my records with somebody else, how do I know they're secure in that sort of environment? The principles of protecting identity are well established. I worked in Canada for 10 years with these types of data in Ontario, and that all of the files are linked and then de-identified before they're analysed. But couldn't someone hack in and get it before it's de-identified? It's an important point, and the, the additional layers of security are not just the identification. It's keeping the data in a secure environment so that people cannot actually download the data or upload a matching data set to re-identify individuals. But de-identification is a key one. David, thanks for joining us on Coronacast. Pleasure. David Henry is Professor of Evidence-Based Practice at Bond University, and that's all we've got time for on this week's Coronacast. As always, we we'll back in your feed next Wednesday. We will, from here or there. <laughs> See you then. <laughs>